0: Kate's, and I have with me today not Kathy Ryan, uh, also known as Rebecca Sturgeon, and this is interdisciplinary Heel Wells Healthcare Podcast, where we talk to interesting people uh, about interesting things, and we uh, try to lift up people who care for people, so that we can make this world more loving, just, and equitable than we can possibly imagine. This is season four, and uh, I'm really excited to be here with our guests today. But before we get to that. I know that you've all been waiting for the pun, and that's why you come back each week. So I thought you should know that I've started telling everybody about eating dried grapes. It's all about raising awareness.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh that serious that oh. Yeah. My oh, you're welcome. Hurts. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> I love that one of our guests like doubled over and I don't know if it was shame, hilarity, it's unclear. Um <laughs> so <laughs> we have with us today uh, Ladybird Morgan and Marvin much and I'm gonna let them tell you why they're here and and what they're up to in the world and then we'll see where we go from there so uh, Marvin and Ladybird I'll let you all uh, arm wrestle or whatever you need to start <laughs> looks like you're on the hook Marvin
2: yeah well um, I never know why I'm anywhere I <laughs> I came to realize a long time ago that we are at any given time right where we're supposed to be on our path. And so uh, I just uh, I'm rather startled sometimes where I'm at and uh, where I'm going. But it's always very interesting. I mean, it informs uh, my forward vision and what I want uh, to get out of. Uh, or what I want to accomplish before I depart. Uh, So uh, in 1974, when I was a teenager, I was um, arrested and tried and wrongfully convicted uh, and sent to San Quentin prison, uh, where I stayed for 41 years until the Innocence Project got me out in 2016. Uh, during that time, uh, I was a member of the prisoners' union, and uh, we—I was an activist and an, an organizer for about three or four years of that organization. And when it imploded, I took that platform and created an organization on the inside that advocated for humane treatment and prison reform from the inside out. And we asked to have elections. The warden thought that was a ridiculous contention. And so we went to court, and we got a court order to allow us to have elections. And I was elected the chair of the first committee in the state, and I was reelected for thirty eight years. Uh, at the height of its population, we represented the collective grievances of a uh, hundred and seventy four thousand prisoners across the state. We litigated everything from community standard health care to food that didn't make you need health care after you ate it and uh, uh, education. Uh, in 2005, a friend of mine, a dear friend, uh, who I ate breakfast and dinner with for 17 years, uh, in the chow hall, uh, took his own life and, uh, I was devastated. I could not understand how this person who I love, frankly, uh, was so close to doing this, uh, this final act and I was not able to see it. So we asked for, uh, we, I wrote letters trying to get somebody to come in and teach us how to f- spot this thing I missed at breakfast that day. And, uh, a group called, uh, an organization called Bay Wars, uh, came in, uh, they have a suicide prevention crisis intervention, uh, rape crisis hotline in the Bay area. And they came in and, uh and gave us an 18-month curriculum on how to spot these signs and crisis intervention. And we became state certified and created a group called Brothers Keepers. Uh, And at the time, San Quentin had a suicide rate six times the national average. After Brothers Keepers, uh, it was zero. And so we, we were able to determine that men did not go to the psychologists or to the normal channels in the prison and tell them they had this ideation or this depression because they would put that in their prison file. And then when they went to their parole board, they would be denied parole because they have a mental illness. So they would just stuff it and eventually turn it in on themselves and take their own life. Uh, After uh, they had this group of brothers who were there for them and present, uh, they were able to, um, we were able to, uh, uh, bring that, that even the attempts down to almost nothing. Uh, of course we had a death row there that we weren't allowed to access. And, uh, there was a, there's, as you would imagine, there's a lot of people there attempting suicide and other things. Uh, one of the components that was missing was, um, grief counseling and, um, compassionate care. Uh, a lot of the, um, uh, men there have um, experienced death in their family, uh, uh, death uh, of friends and cellmates. And uh, anytime there's a death in the prison, it ripples through the prison. Uh, and because these men did not know how to grieve, uh, it would manifest itself as violence against themselves or others. And so we had always wanted that component. And it wasn't until... Uh, I got out of prison. Uh, I was contacted by Lady Bird and Sandra Fish and uh, they were like, Hey, we've been wanting to get into San Quentin for 10 years, trying to get a hospice started there. And I said, well, that's great because, uh, that's one of the things I want as well. And so we got them in and they started giving our brother's keepers compassionate end of life care training. And, uh, how to handle grief, uh, and I can let David Bird tell you more about that. Uh, and so we have graduated two classes with this training, and we're still in the process of trying to get a hospice, an actual hospice there at San Quentin.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's and that's like the cliffy cliffest notes of of (laughs) what your life has been and your contributions so far so I'm interested to hear from from Lady Bird and then to see what happens then
3: yeah well I mean it's always so um just to hear Marvin to hear your story cliff note version full version there's so many um it's just very humbling and honestly I feel like my role in many many ways is to support Marvin Getting out into the world and getting this work um, accomplished. So I, um, I'm Ladybird Morgan, and I'm a nurse and social worker and biodynamic cranial sacral therapist. And um, came to this story around 2015. I had returned from my work with Doctors Without Borders. Had previously been mostly working in end of life hospice care, but also sexual violence as a sexual assault nurse examiner and as a counselor, clinical counselor. Um, and when I came back from Doctors Without Borders, I was I was feeling pretty frustrated and disillusioned with these models of trying to fix things and put band-aids on things and really work on helping victims and survivors. And just I felt like we were I was missing the bigger picture of what's going to actually change the culture. And um, a colleague of mine from a hospice job that I had in San Francisco, Sandra Fish, had been trying. She herself had been trying to get hospice into San Quentin on her own with many different conversations with many different people and it wasn't really happening. And so when I returned, we met again and I was like, well, I'm a nurse and a social worker and I've trained people in hospice and I can do this and I can talk to people about sexual violence and suicide. I was like, let's just do it. So we got very inspired. And as Marvin said, the Bay Area Women Against Rape, that's the Bay War organization, they had been providing the training and they were actually trying to retire. Um, Bay Area Women Against Rape didn't want to continue carrying this program, and Diane and Marcia, who were responsible for it, wanted to step aside, and so I came in at just the right time. They handed me the, their curriculum, um, and I stood in front of uh, two groups of uh, folks at San Quentin, actually, and trained them through this curriculum, And then added in my own ladybird version, which was all of the training I had received in the Bay Area about end of life and, you know, Ram Dass and Frank Ostaseski and all all of the different teachings that I carried, I got to also bring in. And we partnered with a hospice at the time called Mission Hospice. And um, some of their their staff had also, also gone through trainings with me. And they came in, shared their curriculum, and we were able to bring in an actual hospice volunteer curriculum that... Um, the men could walk out with like we went through a volunteer training versus you know me just training them doing some stuff um, and because it was not approved as an actual hospice program they did receive the training verbally but there were no like physical skill days of working with somebody in a hospital bed or um, actively working with somebody in the medical unit so that's something we're still working on but in terms of content and that the way that the classes went it's we sit in a circle um, it's very intimate and um, we talk about we talk about everything um, and they talk about everything and they really get a full sense of how to be with people not just at end of life but in life you know it really to me is a life training and the beauty of what's happening now because it's been so hard to get hospice programs going and we've been committed to the brothers keepers um we're able to see that impact of how um, this training just helps you live. It just helps you be in prison, but it also helps you when you get out. So the, the men who have been paroled out actually are all now working for um, working for their cities that they're paroled into helping in, in the moments of stress and, you know, talking wow. to people who are in crises and saying, you know, Hey, I, I actually understand this. Let's talk about it. We can find another way to do this. And, just even having the conversation about death and dying, I believe has broadened that, you know, it wasn't just a crisis intervention training. It was really a deeper model. So ideally in our fantasy life, not in our fantasy, in our, in our ideal place of where this humane prison hospice go, this model of brothers, keepers, sisters, keepers, humane keepers is that people get trained to show up
2: to whatever is coming
3: at them. It's end of life. It's, it's, getting denied from the board, it's your sister died on the outside and you weren't able to say goodbye, your celly is on drugs, like whatever that is, that they can actually expand their own capacity to show up it happens to include end of life and death and dying. And that piece is also, so I don't want to separate that out. That may, that piece is actually very significant to the work that we're doing. Yeah. And um, the impact of being able to support each other in prison when someone is dying is its own um remarkable and healing journey that transforms the entire culture. So to end my long spiel, like why I'm actually doing the work is that piece. And Marvin will speak to this as well, that there's a transformational quality that happens for all of humanity, not just the person who's dying and not just the person who's offering the care, but this access to being able to offer compassionate care and receive compassionate care um, impacts everybody witnessing and watching. And so, it's profound work. It seems like, Oh, we're just trying to get hospice into prison, but actually we're trying to change the world um, at the same time. So, (laughs) yeah.
0: Yeah. We, we have, I think we have a lot in common. That is, um, (laughs) everything you just said is sort of, that's what we have found also in our training. And um, uh, one of the big shifts, it feels like that we're leading and pulling depending on the day is that that is healthcare you know that like the system has ruined that word but like that caring for each other actually starts with the ability to show up and that that's not it's not something you can do in a perfunctory way that it really is an inside thing that it does make you just more of an instrument of peace and connection in wherever you happen to be yeah, yeah.
2: the other edge to that sword is that it is health care. And it's that tension with what uh, the people that run the prison need to do in order to do the things that they do. Uh, the fact is those walls don't just keep people in. They keep people out. And uh, they need to do what they do uh, uh, in the shadows. Uh, because the, the, the I still have faith that the majority of people were the, were they able to see what was happening in their name, they would not stand for it. I I would think that they would, they would take a position that we have human beings that we need to, I mean, I say often that, that, um, you know, uh, having somebody present when you die was a startling thing for me. I was in prison for 41 years and almost towards the end, the last four years, five years of my time in prison, before the Innocence Project got me out, uh, I was seriously injured and I got sent to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, where um, they have a 17-bed hospice. It's the best kept secret in the system. I did not know about it. Uh I was there um, a year or so, and somebody came and told me that a friend of mine, Wayne Cobb, was at the prison, wanted to see me. I said, where is he at? He said, he's in hospice. I said, where is that at? So I found it, and I was startled uh, that there was a place inside CDC where men would not have to die alone uh, or chained to a bed taking their last breath in shackles at least see 17 men uh and once i found that this was possible uh i knew that if it's possible here it's possible everywhere and uh, why aren't we doing it and it is very it's readily apparent uh first you have to dehumanize the person that you're subjugating in order for them to accept what you're doing and then you have to dehumanize these subjugated people in the eyes of the people that oversee this as a public because, and it's the only way you're going to be able to you know, own people and make them pick cotton or drop bombs on nations. Uh, you have to dehumanize the people you're going to do this to before you do it. Uh, The campaigns that were were going on in the United States before they dropped the atomic bomb was horrendous. Some of the caricatures that were put out by the government that were put on post office walls were horrendous because they needed people to believe we're going to bomb non-humans. And so don't worry about it. And so uh, my entire focus the entire time I was in prison was to throw tethers over the wall and try and get people to come in and meet these men and women. People tend to reify their offenses and make that an attribute of the person. They may have done bad things. They're not bad people. And there's the distinction. Uh, When you have intimate conversations with these fallen and broken men and women, you're going to find that they are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and grandfathers and grandmothers. They're normal people. They just fell somewhere in their life. And some of them, maybe, maybe some of them didn't fall at all. Some people are born onto this path. They, 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 it's just tragic. The start of their young life shows them the worst that humanity has to offer. And um, I tell the story all the time that hospice is like the soul of the prison. Uh, if, if you have a, a prison, which is the darkest place, Imaginable, uh, that's maintained by man against man. Uh, this, uh, it's where violence is born. There, it's it. This darkness will invade you if you don't have a purpose. If you don't keep a lamp lit, you become as dark as the place you're in. Whether you work there, or you live there. So, uh, it's a very dark place. And most of the violent, most violent, most broken people are there because they never learned how to attach to other humans. And so they were divorced from their harm. They didn't care if they hurt people because it didn't bother them. It's only when you introduce to them, this ability to attach to other humans that they start caring. If they hurt people, uh, the film that, that, uh, we have in the middle of our presentations, the, um, Uh, Jack Hall, who is the center of this film, was a war hero. He was captured. He was in a prisoner of war camp. He was tortured. He was put on a death march. Uh, He came back decorated. And um, he was a segregationist. As a lot of people were back in those days, he did not believe in mixing of the races. And he was very um, set in his ways. Uh, at some point after he was back, he had a child and his, when his child was 14, he got addicted to drugs. Uh, some drug dealer got him hooked on drugs and he committed suicide and Jack found his dead son. Uh, one day His he heard this drug dealer talking in a bar bragging about his trade and he killed him and he went to prison for life. Uh, he ended up in a hospice that they created at this prison. And um, it's just um, it's one of those, those things that life surprises you with. That he was being cared for by three African-American men. They washed his face. They combed his hair. They brushed his teeth. They prayed over him. They rubbed his head. And by the time he died, he was telling those men he loved them. And they were saying, I love you too. Uh, and probably the the first time these black men had ever told a white person they loved them. That's the power of, of what we're talking about, bringing into, and it transformed the prison. And just having brothers keepers in San Quentin changed San Quentin from one of the most violent, dark places in the state. To this place where you have these men, whose job it is to to light and illumine these dark shadows that frighten not just the people that live there, but frighten the people outside the prison. And um, so, I, I just think it's important when we start talking about what we're asking for. We're not asking for something that's just going to be. A good thing for this person who's leaving this world. We have to do this to save ourselves as a society. We, we, every time we allow somebody to die alone in their cell, or chained to a bed with guards standing outside their door, we're shedding pieces of our humanity. And it's a, a very precious commodity, we can't afford to lose that uh, any more than we already have. And so It is transformative, and it's much, much larger. It will change um, the prison. And you should be concerned about the darkness in that prison because it fills the the prison with this dark void, and it breaches the walls, and it invades the communities around it. And the people that work there, they become as dark as the place they work in, and they bring that back. It's really, really... Uh, 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 an interconnectedness that people don't like to talk about and the people that run the prisons don't like to talk about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, it strikes me, you know, speaking about humanity and sort of acknowledging and returning humanity to all the humans in the prison system. Um, one of the things probably because I'm a massage therapist that I think about is touch and, you know, touch is a basic human need. Um, and there's so little loving, gentle touch. Um, I watched a few clips from that that film. Uh, it's called Prison Terminal, mm-hmm. Is it, right? Mm-hmm. And just this beautiful moment of of one of the men helping, you know, holding him like like a baby, and, and helping him transfer from into a chair. Right. Um, and it, it just struck me that just being allowed to touch another human being in that caring, loving way is so powerful.
2: It's Um, not allowed in prison, by by the way, unless you're working a hot, you you aren't allowed to touch each other. And, and and, and you're really not allowed to touch anybody that works there. So, uh, I think, um, I think that part you keyed on in that film is really key for me as Mm -hmm. well. Uh, You know, he was washing his face and, uh, I, I don't know. How much more intimate you can be uh, one man to another to w- wash somebody's face and their feet and their you know um, and he would massage him. and of course, they didn't have formal training in that, but they knew uh living the way they did, they knew what hurts on them and that and they knew just from from taking care of people in the hospital there that, you know, you have to turn them. I mean, he's been laying here, so I'm going to, I'm going to massage that. I, I, I just think it's vital that we recognize the humanness of these people that are dying and it, it's going to impact what you're able to do at a mass level. Uh, once, once this takes a uh, foot, once this, once this takes hold inside of a system, uh, once you bring light into a darkness, uh, uh, there still may be shadows that are even cast by the light, but there's an illumination that that helps you to see. Uh, Plato has this wonderful passage in um, the Republic about these prisoners that are bound from their feet all the way to their neck in this cave, and they're facing the wall. And behind them, there's this big flame and there's people walking in front of this flame with these cardboard cutouts of real life things. Uh, And the prisoners think those shadows are real. They think they're real. And he says every once in a while, a prisoner will become unbound and make it out of the cave. And once he sees the true light, he has a responsibility to go back in, which is dangerous because now you're going to be messing with the belief system of the people you left. And you're going to be messing with the people casting the shadows, which is equally as dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think... We're all about um, bringing that that light of compassion uh, 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 into this dark um, environment and teaching uh, men and women who live there to use their lamp that they have, tend it, make sure it doesn't go out, don't let them become dark. And then... The few that that are capable, uh, you'll find that they'll take that lamp and it becomes a torch from time to time, and uh, to as a beacon to attract other people to what their distress is or what needs to be illuminated for people. Uh, it's really important that people understand what's being done in their name inside prison. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. yeah, and that the touch is. Is critical. You know, I know that um, in that in prison terminal, they they were trained by hospice staff to do bedside care and that kind of medical care. And of course, the intimacy is just second nature. People do know how to do that. They just don't have the opportunity. And a lot of times people will be so surprised that um, first they're surprised that there's not a hospice in prison, which surprises me. Um, but then once you start talking about it, they're surprised that there's compassion in prison. And of course there's compassion in prison, as as Marvin said. These are human beings that just haven't been allowed to be compassionate, but it's not that it didn't exist. And so I, you know, the I I go between wanting to really bring people in so that they understand and can see and feel in their own hearts what's actually happening and With that feeling, allow that to then go back to the people inside so that they can access that within themselves as well. It's not so much about experts coming in. And, like, you know, the hospice team trained those men to do the care so that they could provide the care. And it wasn't just about experts coming in. And one of the women we brought in a couple of times to San Quentin, her name is Irene Smith. And, um, yeah. She's amazing. You've heard of her. I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so remarkable. She had actually gone into um, the Vacaville program as well with Elizabeth Kubler Ross way back in yeah, the days yeah. when that first started. But I worked with her at Zen Hospice Project, and um, somebody else from our mission program, Susan Barber, also had worked with her. And so oh, yeah. we, brought, I brought her in to the small group at San Quentin, and um, it was so beautiful to watch her teach these men. They were all men at the time how to just show up and not give a full massage. How do you pay attention to how you're moving your body? How do you pay attention to how your touch impacts somebody else? What it actually feels like to be touched. And so that to me was very transformal. I mean, just transformational. Sorry, not the right word, but, um, and again, it goes back to being able to take that into their life practice. Now they're aware of how they move their bodies in space. I mean, so many things that, we don't even get experience out here. When you're sharing a cell, forced to share a cell, there's no privacy. You can touch both sides with your arms stretched out. Two grown adult people, um, toilet right there for everyone to see. I mean, it's not what, you know, I think as Marvin said, when people really understand what we're paying for, we're paying for torture and right. we're not paying well- for interestingly
2: if you were to put a dog i used to give tours uh and uh when people would come in i would tell them you can put your elbow on one wall and then reach the other wall that's how wide the cell is it's uh it's four and a half feet by nine uh, and so, and there's two human beings in there. If you were to put a German shepherd in that cell, the federal government would shut it down because they have to have so many square feet per pound of dog. So you couldn't put a dog in that cell that you have two humans in, uh, and uh, the, the whole, um, the whole purpose of introducing these things, uh, is to change if we could change the culture of what's going on in prison, uh, compassion is viewed as weakness in most prisons. The men are afraid to show sympathy or empathy to other prisoners because the other prisoners will ravage them because the prison demands it. And so you have to change the culture of the prison that you're bringing this light into. And uh, the, the light, like I said, uh, opens up these shadows, and people are able to see that this this frightening thing is is not there that they thought was there. It's just this empty space that you can occupy. And once there's light, you can occupy it. I tell a story. I don't know. Um, uh, we had this guy uh, when I was at uh, the California Medical Facility recuperating from my injuries, uh, and I was visiting friends at the hospice uh that i became acquainted with there uh they had an uh, they had a person working uh who um was just your typical security person uh they had a guy come to the hospice who was one of the most hated prisoners in the system by guards he killed a state trooper uh After a robbery, him and his partner were on the highway. They got pulled over this unknowing state trooper, pulled him over, and they just robbed a jewelry store. And when he came to the car, they killed him, and he went to prison. And decades later, this young man was now an old man, and he was in hospice. When they brought him into hospice, you have to have six months to live to get into one of these 17 beds. If you're lucky enough to get into one of those beds, you have to have six months to live. Uh, the comment that the officer made was, "If I had my way, he wouldn't have six minutes to live." He hated him, and uh, his this man's sister and brother-in-law and his his um, his uncle and some other people were coming to visit him often. And the compassion that flowed out of that room was really overwhelming, uh, even to people that are used to being in its present. And um, after four and a half months, almost five months, uh, he went on vigil. And the, his family came every other day for four and a half months. When he went on vigil, this officer came into the room. Uh, as he was dying, took off his hat and stood against the side of the room. And when he died, he put his hat back on and went out and sat on the other end of the hospice. He was visibly moved by this man's death. The compassion that was present for this man's last days changed this officer. It dispelled even the hate he'd lived with his entire life. Uh, he was never the same. He is probably one of the most accommodating and present staff members that was involved with that program after that incident right there. So I have no doubt that there's a transformational power that goes with people, um, Recognizing the humanity of every, even those we cast away uh, from us, I think that uh, that we have a responsibility to um, to remind people that we have a responsibility as human beings to recognize humanness in all of its forms. Uh, I I have added a component. I learned about this really wonderful art that uh, ancient Japanese uh, came up with. They would take um, broken vessels, uh, bowls and cups, and they would take the pieces and they would put them together with epoxy and gold. And they had these wonderful gold lines going through this vessel that had been rebuilt. And, the brakes actually become more valuable than the vessel. As long as you repair those brakes with something more valuable than what broke it, that it, there's a value there. If, if you have brought yourself to a point of healing, uh, that is more valuable than that, which broke you, uh, it adds to your worth. And so, Uh, I think it's really a testament that this person at the end of his life felt that uh, he really regretted his his early life, his young life. Mm -hmm. He was not that person anymore. He certainly isn't the crime he committed. He is a human being. And uh, I, I say it all the time that we need to be finding out how people get to these places in their life. They weren't born this way. No. I, for one, would want to know what was torturing their life to make that happen. We need to know. We, at some visceral level, as a society, we should want to know this.
0: Well, I'm curious too. I feel like you, you know this this idea that our fates are bound together, and that you know, as you're speaking, I'm like, it's like you're singing a song, and I'm like, that you're just preaching the gospel. This is absolutely true. I've experienced it. We, in the work we do, we definitely see it but I, I wonder what the challenge, what how you address the challenges of you know so you you've told already some really powerful stories and we quote on the outside like hear these stories and we go oh that's amazing and that was such intense suffering and of course that would be transformative and then we go back to being jerks to each other right we go back to our habitual <laughs> ways of behaving and we sort of we have this myth that you have to have experienced intense suffering to experience a transformation and that, you know, there's such a disconnect between people who are in prison and people who are not in prison. And there's such a strong story of, you know, do the time, do the crime pay, you know, do the time. And, and that this idea that we are all suffering and that we've all been harmed and, um, I was in I was talking with some colleagues recently, and somebody said, Well, you know, you've got to be the change you want to see and um, and because I'm this person, I was like, That's not actually what Gandhi said. Gandhi mm-hmm. said that we um we but mirror the world, and that basically, if you see suffering in front of you, it's because there's suffering inside you, mm-hmm. and that, yes, it does basically translate to when you go in and really become intimate with what's inside that will shift the outside. but there are prisons because this lives inside us. Mm -hmm. And how do we encourage each other to to acknowledge the darkness in us and to really recognize, I imagine when you approach prisons, that there are lots of people in charge who are frightened on some level they don't even understand about the risks of vulnerability Mm -hmm. and compassion and how that will create cracks that scare them in the system. And so how do you move through that with people who are deputies, who are wardens, who are in those positions where, you know, this really tenuous system that has worked for a real long time is going to feel jeopardized. Well how do you address that?
3: Well, I mean, it's it's such a great comment. Um and my first thought is to your point that it's it is about walking the talk and not just not just being active and going inside and doing good things, but actually you yourself in your life, being willing to have a different life, being willing to actually change. And I think for most people in the world, we like to talk about it. We like to put it up on our, you know, social media. This is what I'm doing. It's so amazing. But then the actual transformation of how you respond in the world and paying attention to that, that tracking, this is part of the training that We offer the Brothers Keepers are tracking skills, paying attention to yourself and knowing how you're showing up. The other part of that is going towards light, not like a light chaser, like if only I think good things and only good things will happen. But like to Marvin, your point about these lamps, Brothers Keepers, that's what's so to me so simple about the Brothers Keepers program is that this is what is possible. So we're just going to do this. Yes. We want it to transform into a hospice program. Yes. We want all of these things to happen. But right now what we're focusing on is humanity. We're allowing someone to be human and you just keep going in that direction. And as like Marvin talked about that guard who watched it, nobody like shoved it down his throat and said, look, you're going to watch this happen and then you're going to feel change. And then you're going to go home and do different things at home. It happened. Right, And I think this way that we have of forcing people to do things, shoving it down their throats, kind of saying, go and do this, that that doesn't actually happen that way. And so you just keep plodding along with really strong intention, with your eye on that future and and actually modeling it, right? Not just saying, hey, you're not doing this and getting mad (laughs) and cranky. Like, that doesn't help either. And it's not true. And and it's not actually... it isn't real and people can feel that as well. So I think that's the other side of this. that so much change is being asked. People are asking for it, but they're not actually doing it themselves on those deeper levels. Do we want to admit to that? How does that happen? That's a bigger conversation. So I always just go back to like, okay, mind your own business. You know, what? How am I showing up?
0: Take care of your house. How are my
3: actions actually impacting and what is the impact of my words on people? And all of those pieces, they do actually add up over time. Um, I do think so, but trying to like convince correctional officers or wardens about anything, no. But I actually do think that when they watch the movie, and hear these conversations, there is a seed that does happen. And so raising awareness, talking about it more, and not keeping it quiet, not having it just be for a couple of people, which you know I, I feel very strongly about, not having this work be just for the special volunteers, you know, like this is, I guess Marvin says this, these prisons are everyone's prisons and everyone actually is going to die. Everyone has the capacity to, de- to deal with death and dying, whether they like it or they don't like it or they feel comfortable or they don't, they're all going to get an opportunity. Yes. So it's not a special calling. Um, and it, for it to kind of be removed from that special calling, that being human is a special calling, like just, I think just kind of taking away the the um the, the specialness of it would yeah. be helpful actually
2: <laughs> I, well you you yeah. know that the, the this comment that you made at the beginning of this uh this piece right here about it being inside people uh and that it's really a a crazy juxtaposition that this whole thing of course this thing is inside them and it makes people uncomfortable to know it's there. And they have become very good at disassociation. Like, oh, no, that I don't have that. But uh, Brian Stevenson uh, says that you cannot fix brokenness until you become proximal to it. You do have to be proximal to the brokenness. And it's only then that you realize that that, all of this brokenness is part and parcel of you as a greater whole you are a piece in this mosaic that we call life and so um one of the things that we have to do with the administrations is to show and create a synergy we have to create a mutual benefit Uh, back when i first first went to prison uh, it was very violent uh, for, uh, at San Quentin uh, and Folsom is where they sent all the people who were convicted of high level felonies like myself. And I ended up in San Quentin, uh, a young 18 year old. And, uh, it was really, it was really not a good place. And whenever guards would do something to one of us, they would kill one of them. And, uh, it was so violent that they had inmate key men the guards were on guardrails with weapons and they had a prisoner that would key the doors and throw the bar to open up the, the door fronts to let people out for for chow or for exercise yard because the guards couldn't open the doors themselves and get back up on the rail fast enough. They would, they would be got by somebody. So uh, when we wanted uh, to have radios and we wanted to have small televisions so we could see the world and know what's going on uh, know that you know nixon hasn't been president for 15 years when well, we want to find this kind of stuff out when well, we wanted to have newspaper subscriptions uh just to keep track of things uh they did not want to do that so we negotiated our organization ne- negotiated with everybody and said look you guys s- start giving these men something that they can lose I mean, if you have nothing to lose, you have nothing to lose. So give them these things that they can lose you know, maintain on their own or lose it. And your, your men can come down off the guardrails and we negotiated over the course of a couple of years and we got all these things and, uh, the world didn't end because these men could hear the news or, or listen to music on their headphones. Uh, and in fact, it changed uh, the, the violence of the prison to, you know, a great degree. Uh, to the end of this conversation, we talked about, um, I I don't think that we have a right to take some moral high ground and condemn somebody for their failings and what they don't have or what they're not, what they're not um, displaying in their, in their actions in their life. We don't have the right to that moral high ground. If, if they cannot turn around and see this thing that you want modeled for them, you have to model these qualities that you're demanding of these fallen men and women that you're caging and chaining. And if you don't, if you're not willing to do that, you don't, you've lost your right to have that moral high ground. So I do believe that people coming into this system should be able to see model for them empathy and compassion and redemption and forgiveness uh it it cannot be that that um this remarkable capacity human beings have for growth and for and for just self-destruction but uh I mean, when I was a little, when I was young, I was in foster care. I remember I was a chronic runaway. I went to this court hearing. Uh, I was maybe eight years old. And a judge sent me to this boys ranch. Uh, uh, He said I was incorrigible. Uh, And I went back and looked it up. And I was like, blown away. I could really no hope seriously I was eight years old I was blown away that somebody would tell me even at that age I knew this can't be right it it can't be that there's no hope that uh, I'm beyond redemption beyond repair Uh, and and people tell children these things Uh, there's groups of people in this world that don't have any voice nobody hears them prisoners Children, nobody listens to children. Old people, uh, there are groups of people that nobody hears. And and, and they're really comfortable uh, allowing things to happen to them. And so this thing that's inside people is there. A lot of people have got to the point where they've disassociated from even recognizing that it's there. Uh, that's why prisons need to be run in secrecy, Uh Nobody out here who pays this fiscal year uh, we just left out of. Californians paid $13.8 billion running 35 prisons in California. They're on track to spend $20 billion this year to run 35 prisons in California. And 67% of the people that leave prison return within three years. So we're paying $20 billion to fail 67% of the time. I I just think that there's other ways that we can be um, going into these uh prisons uh and helping people learn how to attach to other humans teaching empathy and compassion uh and having the people that work there modeling this uh, uh so people can when they leave they they they're not releasing prisoners they're releasing People, There has to be this transformation from prisoner to person, because if you release, if you unwrap a person in the prisoner persona from gate to gate, you're releasing a prisoner. If you release a prisoner, by definition, they're going to come back because prisoners need a prison. They need it. So we have to help them self-actualize while they're there. And what is it that we want to install uh, in this self-actualized person that's going to Benefit not just this person, but the community that they're coming back to. When you take somebody out of the community because they've done great harm or whatever the reason you, you've you've taken them out of the community for a time, you have to know whether you want to accept it or not. That you, every time you remove one of these people from the community, you leave a hole, yeah. and oh. you. If when you once you take them out and this whole exists, you have to bring that person back in some whole way. Otherwise we start looking like Swiss cheese out here. You have to bring these people back in a whole way. And now you're contributing to a societal well. What we're doing right now is contrary to public safety. Uh when you tell a person it's not your job to be compassionate to these other prisoners. In fact, I'm going to write you a disciplinary report because you were touching that person. You're not allowed to touch other people in prison. And so, uh, and death is treated uh, as an accusatory thing. Uh, If you die in prison, uh, if you are a terminal person and they know that you're terminal and you're in your cell, if you die in your cell, your cellmate goes to segregation until the autopsy is done, which is sometimes a month or more. Uh, So, This person who may have been living with this person who just died for 10, 20, 30 years now must start their grieving process if they even know how to do that in segregation by himself. People, uh, uh, if they are, if they're able to make the decision, if they're not in too much pain, if, uh they don't have a lot of palliative intervention. Uh, they don't allow most drugs, uh, that would ease somebody's pain. Of course, they don't allow people to come in and give them a massage. Uh, of course they, uh, uh, but if they say I need more help than I'm getting now, they will take them out and they will take them and put them in a hospital cell where you are truly alone. you're, you're away from your property. You're away from your your, um, your cellmate, you're away from this place. That's your home. Even if it is your prison, it's your home. And so they, they most will just suffer in their cell until they are found dead one day. And then your cellmate goes to segregation because they now have to investigate whether or not you killed this person or they actually died of the cancer that everybody knew that they had. Uh, so, uh, our advocacy is that we, A, have a place where these men and women, if you are so jealous of your revenge and your vengeance that you do not want this person to take his last breath or her last breath outside of chains, then at the very least allow them to remain in this place, this this concrete and steel womb that they have come to know is their home allow them to die there where something is familiar around people that are familiar to them and that uh, in the only way they know how care for them you know i mean it's really it's really strange because i i just told you a lot of people in there they don't know how to care for other people they when 9-11 happened there was guys walking around the prison in a daze they were like what's wrong with me and i had to tell them you're feeling victimization for the first time in their life they experienced something that made them feel like a victim so uh i think there's ways for us to show this uh, this inhumanity in such a way that people will want to uh extend this this um necessary opponent uh beyond the the restrictive walls of the prison and bring it inside uh i know it's going i know it will put a dent in the 67 percent of the people that run back in every time you open the gate but
0: so tell to... us i know that our our listeners are going to be like this is amazing and I want to bring this to my community. I want to be involved somehow. What, what can we lay folk on the outside do to either support your work or to begin to create inroads in our own communities to make this possible?
3: Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. First is just spreading awareness. And I, um, I did forward the, the link for tonight. We're gonna to be presenting for the Elizabeth Kula Ross. I mean, by the time you hear this, it will already have happened, but um, Humane Prison Hospice Project does provide screenings of this film with panel conversations to talk to hospices, schools, communities, medical facilities, individual gatherings about this work. So that's one thing is just finding ways to raise the awareness. Um, Locally, if you're interested in trying to do something like yourself, I encourage people to actually learn about the prisons in your community, because a lot of times you don't even know where the prisons are, how many people are there, what's actually happening. There could be programs that are already in existence with the volunteer program. So finding out what the volunteer programs are, um, again, like not assuming that nothing is happening and really finding out who is there doing what and then start getting involved, finding out if you can actually volunteer for a program. Similarly, with the hospices, go and get hospice volunteer training and find out what that's like and see what you know, and then find out with the hospices. Is there somebody there that's actually interested in providing this care and this training to a prison? Has somebody actually tried to do it already? Is somebody there that knows about it? So starting to partner these places together so that you can actually get the resources. It's not an individual task. It's absolutely a community task. And then, you know, advocating politically advocating for with your governor, advocating in your state, you know, what do we have for our prisons in our state? What's happening in our in our city even? Can we actually get momentum to get some laws passed so that this is actually required? That in, you know, in the state of California we're hoping that all prisons have compassionate end of life care it's a human right and can we get that mandated so that it actually trickles back down so you can move on the on the big scale or you can move on the small scale and just Mm -hmm. um, especially with prison I do like to encourage people to really go learn about their prisons first you know these are these are kingdoms there's a lot of people in there that even though we're talking about the hard sides of it because it's so hard and dehumanizing and isolated people that work within those environments also feel isolated so having people come in and say, hey, I've got this great program and you guys don't have any idea what you're doing and that's not going to, that's not going to work and it's not very helpful. Actually going yeah. in with a little humbleness of like, let me see what you're doing. How have you been doing this? would you be interested in this possibility after you already know me type of thing? Right. So not, yeah, this, I was
0: going to say like, I, I want to stamp a white savior alert on your in- yeah, invitation. let no, really it's, notice your intention, notice your intention
3: and, <laughs> and notice your capacity and what is moving through you. And you know, Cal, you, you had a question earlier about, you know, how can change really happen? And, you know, it's so related to what we see happening right now around gender and race and all of this, um, this finally voices are being heard and spoken but what's happening is the the folks who are in the i mean for lack of a better word the dominant positions of you know being the oppressor or the one that's um perpetrating this experience this relationship it's not because they want to or they've chosen to it's the way the system is set up and just listening to a podcast and crying and going okay i get it is not true (laughs) Just reading a book from Reshma Menekam and thinking that you understood it because you had a good cry and now you're ready to save the world again is not the point. And what I notice and what I feel like is really important, and Marvin and I, we talk about this, I think we're still trying to understand each other when I say this. Yes, it's important to, to break down those walls and bring people in, but allowing people to experience their humanity, not giving it to them or... Um, so there's still, yeah. there's still a, there's still a, almost like a vampire like quality that I think is going to continue because this discomfort of patriarchy falling and also white supremacy falling yes is huge. It's not just a chapter that we're going through that we're going to feel better about it. Once we all get it. it, it's actually a crumbling of our sense of self and our, I'm a white supremacist, you know, I mean, there's no way for me not to be, I grew up in this culture so yes. to really be honest about that and honest about why you're going towards this work and then just, just being clear about it and then keep going towards it. It doesn't mean everybody stop and hold back and don't do something, but I think right. we're in this amazing moment where, um, where healing is actually possible and the change that we're all talking about is going to happen because we also allow people to show up fully and be themselves and we're not just constantly doing things for them and doing things to them. So finding that balance. And I think as massage therapists or any kind of healthcare practitioners that are out there in the world, you know, you're offering this healing modality, hopefully for people to find health in their bodies again. Right. So that yes, they come back to you because it feels great, but they also come back to themselves and they can show up in their worlds more fully. And it's not just about them needing you. And there's something really, something about this work you know and we, and it's because of how we've created it i mean i came out of the doctors without borders model which is all about cowboy saviorism you know you go in and you save the day and that's a very different model than allowing and right. and supporting it doesn't mean you stand back and do nothing but it's it's a different model and we haven't been fully given that very well so
2: well i'm i'm real com- i'm real comfortable in our capacity as humans inside because I've sat in cells with friends who just heard that their mother died and people weep. I know their capacity and they have to do it in private because it's viewed as weakness. But the tension that Lady Bird alluded to in some of our conversations about this very subject is I'm comfortable in this capacity that we have for this growth. I also know that this cannot happen without buy-in from the people Mm -hmm. who run the prison and who support the prison. So my focus has always been getting people to come in with this thing. And of course we want people to come into this organically at some point in their life. But Mm -hmm. my vision is to is to get lawmakers to have a national mandate that if you have human beings in your care and custody, then you have to provide at least this minimal amount of care, including end-of-life care. Once that mandate happens, uh, we will be the gold standard. There's nobody else trying to do this for these people. Uh, And I've always said, it's not going to be a PhD coming out of College is going to fix this. It's going to be somebody coming out the prison gates. And, uh, and I see myself uh, uh, actively uh, seeking out partnerships with death doulas and massage therapists and people. These are the people that are going to bridge mm-hmm. that void between these people who are in custody inside this walled um, uh, fortress and the community out here. Often hospices are institutions, let's face it. And uh, sometimes you're going to go to a hospice and they're going to go, well, that doesn't fit our bottom line. You know, we have investors, we have this, we have that. I, I, my faith is in the people yeah. who, are, who feel in their being that they need to put that hand of compassion physically on the suffering of their fellows. I think that those are the people that I really want partnering with us anyway. Right, and Marvin, I think
3: it's the the bridge instead of the savior. That's what I was saying. Of course the bridge has to happen, but the model that we are coming from was more savior like models, and so usually we go into trainings to even be death doulas or whatever because we want to be the one That's that right. shows up. But now right. we're asking for a bridging that you, as yeah, a dueler right. person, be the one to show up and provide this skill and this training you know, and capacity. So,
2: and I'm looking and at a, a lot of the people too, so that a, a yeah. lot of people that come in have told me <laughs> that, that that I've had into the prison tell me this. Was more profound for me than I think it was for the people that I mm-hmm. came to see. Uh-huh. They come out visibly changed. And they and they're 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 startled by the fact that that I mean I think everybody has this imagining of what's inside the prison when they drive by. They go, "Oh, these people that are in there." They just imagine it's. I mean, there's these caricatures of evil that you see and uh, spread across the news. Uh, there are medical professionals. Who still don't recognize hospice as being part of the medical care system? It's absolutely. just some, it's something extra. It's a nice thing, but it's not necessary, right? Really, seriously, palliative care is, is it, it it's something extra, right? It's like if you can afford it, absolutely, then I, I would say go ahead and do it. But, well, and
0: I feel it, like compassion gets tossed in that same bucket. It's like, exactly. oh, that's cute. Who has time for that? Yeah, yeah, and.
2: Yeah, There's but... nobody living in a tent in San Francisco right now who is thinking about going to hospice or in imagining that anybody's ever going to come and rub their muscles. Mm-hmm. They, they, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist for most people who are marginalized. And Absolutely. so, uh, and you can't get any more marginalized than, than, than the segregated darkness that you experience when you're inside of a prison, nobody can reach into you, mm-hmm. uh, Normally, uh, uh, there are things happening. I was very encouraged for the first couple of years I was out. And said, am I'm out at a very progressive time." Lady Bird alluded to it. We're bashing these barriers. We're really, we're really making some headway, and then we have reality start raising his head again. Hey, you know, there's people really trying to send women back to the 1940s. They really are. The Supreme court might do it, uh, you know, next year, who knows? And so I really am desperate now because I'm 65 years old. I, I went in, I was 18. I was 60. When I came out, I'm 65 years old and I want to make sure that I can get one thing done before i have to leave this world and uh uh i don't have children i have mortimer the cat and uh yeah i have a wonderful wife and i have a home so i'm not i'm not you know uh crying in my milk but the the fact is is i i i feel an urgency and i think that the secret's going to be these people whose lives it is uh their 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 path is to provide this uh i think that the carriers of this of, of these lamps the carriers of these torches are going to be the ones that help us bridge all of this uh and once this happens there's going to be a synergy created where forward uh, forward looking, uh, prison administrators and, and, and people in society are going to see, you know what, we're really making a difference. We're creating a societal well, we're doing something and, and it's not just for these people. I mean, it's for all of us. It's for all yeah. of us. We had absolutely, you know, we have... and I think
0: yeah. I, I, th- I mean, you. This, there are so many, so many like rabbit holes that we could go down about this. I am so grateful to both of you for your time today, and also for all the work that you're already doing. I mean, I feel like if you die tomorrow, Marvin, and I hope you don't. Um, You you have paid your rent on this earth and and certainly um, made an incredible investment. And we will put uh, Mm -hmm. the website uh, in the show notes as well as information about Prison Terminal and other resources so that folks can begin on their Mm -hmm. own journeys to do the slow and patient work of uh, supporting this change of stopping to tell all these lies that have been holding up our world for so Mm -hmm. long. Um, So thank you both for being with us. Thank you for having Uh, us. Absolutely. This has been another episode of Interdisciplinary. It is still season four, so it's not too late to leave us a review and score yourself one of our fantastic season four prizes. Uh, So go out there on the social media, like us, share us, tell your mom and your pets and your friends and everybody that they should listen also. And uh, another deep bow of gratitude to our guest today and my co-host Rebecca Sturgeon. We'll see you soon. Bye.
1: interdisciplinary is produced by heal well our theme music is by harry pickens new episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org at the podcast at healwell.org thanks for listening